0: Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance.
1: You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. Today, we're going to talk about the F word. No, not the fun F word that you thought I was talking about. <laughs> you guys know my my three F words by now if you've read Fast This Way. And this has come from years of just trying to understand why people do what they do. And the first F word that drives us and drives all life forms is fear. And this is just our bodies trying to keep our meat safe from predators without our bodies really understanding that we're in there. in fact, our body doesn't really care that much. And what that means is that things that happen to us that are called trauma set up our automatic uh, reactions, automatic negative thoughts and things like that. And it's one of those things, if you hack it, you get so much energy back because every electron you make goes somewhere in your body or your brain or your mind. And if a huge number of electrons are going into useless thoughts that are sabotaging you, you're wasting your precious energy. And that's why trauma has been such a, a, a hard-to-talk-about but powerful thing, because most people will say, I don't have any trauma. I'm an adult and nothing that bad happened. However, trauma is an automatic pattern that is designed to be invisible for you. So I have a really special guest on today. And if you're, you know, if you're saying, Dave, I don't believe you, there's been several really good episodes where we talk about this. Um, a while ago, uh, I shared about uh, my work with Amen Clinics. Uh, we've had Dr. Daniel Brown talked about early childhood attachment disorders, which was incredible. And Dr. David Rabin talking about touch and breath work and psychedelics and Dr. Rachel Yehuda. So this is an ongoing uh, theme for Bulletproof Radio where I'm going to talk about fear and things like fasting. And some of these are frankly unpleasant, but if you want to hack yourself, yeah. like these are the things that suck the most energy that you don't know are doing it. And that said, if you don't have enough core energy because you really are insulin resistant and your brain doesn't work, you got to fix that too. But these are all part of biohacking. And that's why uh, I'm recording this episode today that I think you're really, really going to like. And our episode guest is a three-time cancer survivor and someone who's been through a huge amount of trauma and has never talked about it. And someone who's a New York Times bestselling author and vice president of the Amon Clinics, a neurosurgical ICU trauma nurse, and a health and fitness expert as well. And I'm talking about Tana Amon, who is Doctor Amon's um, partner and wife, Tana, welcome to the show.
2: Wow, uh, thanks, Dave. Love being here with you.
1: There's a lot more to you than I know. I've I've known you for years. Uh, you know, you and <laughs> Doctor Amon are you know friends. Um, I didn't know that you had a secondary black belt in Kempo and a black belt in Taekwondo. And like you're full of grit. You walk around looking all kind of Hollywood and beautiful and you know socialite. <laughs> Uh, but you're kind of a badass,
2: thank you. Yes., um, yeah, there's a reason for that. I practice karate, not dance. um if i I love going to the range and not to hit golf balls. um so yeah, there's there's a reason for those things.
1: Uh, is that because you were compensating for a, a shocking amount of trauma in your life?
2: Yeah, so I grew up. Um, it's, it's funny that you say that. You mentioned the socialite, and you know how I look. And for a long time, I used that as a facade. It was a, w- a way to keep people away, so they wouldn't see I was overcompensating, if you will. It's it's like if I if I accomplish enough, if I look good enough, if I have enough makeup on or the right clothes, people won't see how broken I am. They won't see how really screwed up I am inside. Um, but when I was really young, I mean, all my early childhood memories, I remember when I, when I met my husband, Daniel, we were first dating and he's like, well, you know, tell me some of the good memories from when you were a kid. And I'm like, honestly, I don't remember any. I remember almost drowning when I was two. I remember my uncle being murdered when I was four. I remember waking up and being alone again when I was two. No one was there. I was just left. Um, and I could go on and on, but I couldn't really think of any good memories. I mean, I remember my dad leaving. Um, you know, it was just, there was just a lot of trauma. My uncle was a heroin addict, and then there was sexual trauma in my, you know, adolescence. Um, and so I just, those are when you're, those are your early memories. The job for children is to be able to explore the world, to figure out who they're going to be, and you know, know that the world is a safe place. But it wasn't a safe place. So for some of us, that's just not the truth. And so you start to go inside and hide, and you're looking for other ways to control your environment. And for me. That ended up being sadly an eating disorder. And of course, that wasn't, that was gross, that was weird. And so there was no way I was going to tell anybody. So I just like buttoned that up and built this wall, this facade. So I couldn't let people know me for real because they couldn't, they wouldn't love me.
1: You Mm -hmm. tell all of your stories in your new book, uh, The Relentless Courage of a Scared Child. Uh, which in and of itself is a pretty, you know, courageous title. But it, you wrote a book about grit. How many people do you think are out there with a similar amount of trauma who just don't show anything but are still holding it inside?
2: Oh, so many. And I, I, I know this. I mean, not only because of our clinics, but that's really. I spend you know most of my day reading these. Not I don't. Just when I look at the comments I get on social media, and not just mine, but Daniel's and all the people that we talk to. Um, there are so many people, and not just women, so many people in general that have trauma. And I used to hate that word. I love what you said when we first started the show. I hated the word trauma. I wouldn't address some of these things because it made me feel weak. It made me feel like a victim. And I, I survived by not being a victim. So I just kept shoving it down, only I was you know doing things like throwing up. <laughs> so, so that wasn't working out so well. Um, but the word trauma made me feel like a victim. And You know, now that I'm older, wiser, went through the healing process, the truth is you can be victimized and not live your life as a victim. Just because I was victimized as a child does not mean I am a victim now. And that's part of why I do things that I think symbolically remind me of that. Like martial arts. You know, it's important to me. It's important to me to remind myself, you know, I am kind of a badass. I've survived a lot and I've thrived through all of that. So in, rather than post-traumatic stress, we like to talk about post-traumatic growth. So some people have post-traumatic stress, but there are a subset of people who, when you put them in really traumatic environments, they will come out stronger on the other end.
1: Scott Barry Kaufman from uh, Columbia came on recently, and he talked about uh, victim narcissism as a new type mm-hmm. of narcissism that's out there, where people are saying, well, I suffered, therefore I deserve." And, and your book is the opposite of that. And grandiose narcissism is, you know, I am so good, therefore I deserve. And, and both of those are, are are very harmful behavior patterns that you can learn. Uh, but your book is like, yeah, I suffered, and then I worked really freaking hard, and and yeah. you know, you deserve because of what you did, which is uh, which is really cool. It's how you respond to the environment that that shows grit, which is why I thought your book was really interesting.
2: So I have so many family members who, who fit into that category. I've never heard that term. I love the term you just used. Um, I love that. Can you say that again?
1: Victim narcissism or suffering narcissism. Oh, narci- I love that. It was a powerful interview. About,
2: yeah, who think that they just deserve to be taken care of just because. And I'm like, you know, my mom was a 16-year-old runaway, um, lived on the streets, literally lived on the streets, never finished high school, and ended up retiring one of the, like, super wealthy. Because she that woman's got grit in excess. And I know I got that from her. But she never, ever took no for an answer. She never behaved like a victim. And we went through hell and back. But it was like, it doesn't matter. You just keep getting up and you keep doing it over.
1: So if, if you're listening to the show right now and, and you're thinking, What the heck? There are a good number of people listening right now who have similar circumstances. I, I want you guys to see like Tana she worked with uh, Dr. Eamon and Dr. Oz on the Daniel plan I and mean, you guys have had a huge impact on the world of brain science on helping millions of people change their nutrition uh, and you know you're, you're successful in every measure of success and yet if you're 25 and you're going what the heck is going on um, it is exceptionally common when you're in your 20s even if you didn't have nearly as much trauma as you did like I, I had a lot of bullying. Uh, And I had some birth trauma. Mm -hmm. I had no idea it made any difference uh, in my life. But when I was at Amen Clinics, um, to this day, um, if you show me pictures of smiley people and angry people, I identify the angry people three times as fast as the happy people. And that's a (laughs) sign of trauma. You you too, right? And so this isn't trauma. Yeah, it's survival. It's because my network was wired to be ready to handle threats faster and better than the average person. And it might be a strength. And do you think
2: it is it, it, to some degrees? It is. So I remember it's funny that you brought that up because you came to our clinic and that's where you learned that. So I remember when they were developing that tool and my husband actually wanted me to use it because he, he knew what was going to happen. So of course I noticed all the negative faces and the scary faces and the terrorist faces and all this. And he's like, we need to work on this. This tool is going to help you notice all the happy faces. I'm like, why the hell would I want to do that? That's not going to keep me alive. Like what are you talking about? That like I was attacked when I was 15 by some dude behind me, some you know big dude in a suit. I don't want to notice the happy faces. I want to notice the ones that are going to attack me. And we do that out of survival. What that tool is for is to help you begin you're not going to lose that. But you do want to start to notice the happy things and the good things around you. That positivity bias training is really important. It doesn't mean we have to lose our survival skills. Um, but I just remember when they were developing that, it just reminded me when you said that it was so funny.
1: Um, it's, it, it was actually really eye opening for me because I I have done a lot of, of what we'll call trauma healing. And and okay. When I say that I still kind of throw up in my mouth a little bit trauma healing, like, okay, I'm a six, four dude. I can take on most people just by nature of who I am. I can take them on intellectually or even physically, unless there's some kind of a trained fighter or they're better armed than I am. Right. Mostly that's physics because I'm big. Right. But I also right. know I know to take care of myself and that's fine. Um, so I don't walk in fear. I don't think about that stuff. It's not a part of my life. I don't worry about it. Um, that said, you know, when I walk into a room, do I know all the potential threats? Yeah, it's built in. It's automatic. Right. And it's mm-hmm. the same thing that, you know, Navy SEALs are trained to do. Um, not that I'm anywhere near a Navy SEAL level, but it, it's that you, just, you kind of scan the room. And you're like, all right, fine. But I don't dwell on it. But I didn't recognize, oh, that that not everyone has that. And that that is, um, in part, it's automated system uh, protection. And it's the automated nature of it. So when I say I've healed trauma, what that means is I stopped recognizing things as threats that weren't actually threats. And that's what trauma healing is actually about. And when you stop recognizing as a threat, you stop going into fear. And then you stop wasting electrons that ought to be going into folding proteins or thinking about good stuff. Uh, And so when I say healing trauma, that's what I'm talking about. But I feel like those words are so like, they're so stigmatized. Is there a better word than trauma?
2: So I like the definition that I found of trauma, because it really helps you process it differently. I hated that word. And I remember when I started therapy, I mean, to unpack this a little, um, she's like, well, tell me about when you were molested. I'm like, I wasn't molested. She's like, you told me your stepdad, you know, climbed in bed with you and did all these things. I'm like, Yeah, but other people have had it worse. Like, I could not say the words. And so I couldn't say trauma. I couldn't say molested. I couldn't say these these things that had happened because I survived by not thinking that way. But when you take the word trauma and you actually think of the definition, really what it is, it's any event or set of events that occurred in your life that made you think the world was unsafe, that broke your trust in people that you're surrounded by, that really caused you to just not trust and so if you think of it that way, okay, that's easier to digest for me. I mean, for me, that was easier to digest. Yeah. Like, okay, a lot of things have happened in my life. I don't need to think of myself as a traumatized person. Um, but that's what trauma is.
1: I, I like that, that way of thinking about it. And it means that you have buttons that can be pushed by other people mm-hmm. or things that you don't want. Like one of the, the traumas, when we talk about trust, one of the, the very interesting traumas for me that I had totally forgotten about. And this is another thing you usually start, don't even think about them. Um, is that when I was in something like first grade, uh, um, one kid did something, uh, and I told the mm-hmm. teacher cause it was like a destructive thing. And then the, the kid goes, Oh no, Dave did it. And then I got punished mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. someone else doing the wrong thing, even though I did the right thing. Right. Okay. And so I had forgotten about this. it. It, it, but it was one of those things where I don't feel safe because an authority figure, a teacher, punished me for doing the right thing. right? And, and this is – is that really trauma, Dave? Are you still thinking about this? No, I didn't think about it for 30 years. But then um, I go on uh, i go on the Joe Rogan Show, and I share like really good science. I'm just helping people, and, and I've already helped people a lot with my content. Mm-hmm. And when Joe Rogan had a financial interest in a competitor – he came oh, yeah. after my reputation, like attacked me relentlessly for 18 months. And meanwhile, I have all these emails from him, just all this weird stuff that it couldn't even do. But what it had done is it pushed that button that yep. I did the right thing, I came on, I shared good knowledge, I know Bulletproof Coffee changed his brain because he said it hundreds of times without me paying mm-hmm. him. But then once he was selling another brand, it was like, Dave's a jerk and he lied. And that yeah. pushed that trauma button for me. And I was like, what do I do? And you it, it, it go to that fight, flight, or freeze kind of thing. And I'm like, I wanna, you yep. know, um, go after it, but I was like, no, I, I'm gonna just keep talking about science. But it was really stressful. And so I'm like, oh, I'm gonna do some neurofeedback. Fortunately, I own a neurofeedback company. And I went in and suddenly this old memory popped in my head. I'm like, wait a minute, that's so stupid. Yeah. Right. And then once I once I edited that trauma experience, so I didn't react to it anymore. I was like, wait a minute. Every time he says I'm a jerk, I sell more coffee. Like th- <laughs> this is the actual reality. Everything goes, Dave Asprey's a bad man. I'm like, say it again, say it again. Right. But it was so I mean, I went through like eight months of hell, not recognizing that an old trauma button I'd forgotten about was getting pushed by a an adult bully.
2: And that's really what we refer to as PTSD. That's PTSD. Right. You don't notice you don't recognize why, but something happens in the present and you don't know why you're reacting always sometimes you do know but usually you don't know and you're like what is going on so what we want to do is identify am i really reacting because of now or am i reacting because of something in the past and neurofeedback is brilliant we love neurofeedback um so neurofeedback something called emdr which is a form of therapy which obviously takes a little longer
1: i did that too Um, yeah
2: it's a good good form of therapy that's what i did um but we do we um have a lot of our patients do neurofeedback because it's just brilliant um so that's actually a really good point that you make because we often are reacting to the past. And I love something else you pointed out. You pointed out your electrons and why trauma, why it's important to heal from the past trauma because it's, it's really wasting your body's energy on something that's not helping you with your health, right? Um, and so I, I remember when I met my husband, he was, you know, we were having these conversations and I'm like this badass, hard charging ICU trauma nurse. I would not work with patients who are walkie-talkies. I wanted them sedated, intubated, blood, gut, score. Like, let's not talk, right? Let's just get this done. Um, I want cracked skulls, you know, that kind of thing. He's the warm and fuzzy kind of like, let's, you know, talk this through. And so he starts talking to me. and I'm like, oh my God, don't shrink me. No psycho babble. I don't want to hear this. Because um, that was just how I was. I And I know that part of that was my reaction to not wanting people to get close to me. It was really my reaction to keep people from knowing me.
1: i I can't imagine you that way like you've done so much healing because i mean you're you're kind you're open like you're 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 a good person like i've spent plenty of time with you so you've transformed dramatically i mean i have too i was a pretty big jerk when i was younger but um i think you your orders of magnitude more than that so it's very hard to imagine and i I want everyone listening if you're like (laughs) i have all these dark thoughts or voices in my head all that stuff we have a poster child here for how far you can go.
2: <laughs> yeah, and I really I really do feel like I've come a long way. But my first gift from Daniel was 10 sessions of EMDR. And I'm like, who would give someone a gift of therapy? Like, except to shrink, who would give someone a gift of therapy? I remember that. And I remember him talking to me about, you know, some of these early memories. And he's like, so you, he made this connection. He said, so you're, you remember the day vividly that your uncle was murdered in a drug deal gone wrong when you were four. And two weeks later, you were in the hospital at four years old. You were in the hospital for upper and lower GIs. And I'm like, yeah, so? And he was like, well, don't you think those are connected? And I'm like, oh my God, here we go again. The psychobabble, right? I was like, no, they're not connected. And of course they were connected. I was one of those frequent flyers at the hospital. I was on antibiotics all the time for unexplainable things, high fevers, yeah. High fevers. I've had 10 medical surgeries diagnosed with cancer when I was 23 that kept coming back. Um, so, you know, to think that our trauma doesn't have an effect on our body. I just I want to really point out what you said, because it's important when we don't heal from trauma. All of that energy is sort of stuck and it's focused on the wrong things. It's, you're stuck in this flight or fight thing. You're stuck in this mode of like, I need to survive as opposed to I need to just thrive and heal and live life like you can't do that and that's that's one of the really big reasons to do it
1: i've had a a a person really close to me who i said you should do my 40 years of zen thing where you're going to look at all these thoughts and maybe go in and edit the ones that want and the answer was uh no i might not like what i'd find if i look in there (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
1: how often do you see that
2: so they're afraid of one of two things it's going to be so bad that we can't help them or worse the worst one is I'm afraid that nothing is wrong with my brain and it's just my fault. But people oh. are afraid. And I'm like, why would you not want to know? For me, I always like, but then I remember a time when I didn't want to know. So I try to remember that and have empathy. Um, now it's like, bring it. Just bring it on. Like, I want to know everything. I want to do everything. I'm kind of like you. You are a jump the canyon kind of guy. You're kind of extreme. I love your posts. I mean, they crack me up. But you're an extreme guy. And I'm like that. Like, my husband are very yin and yang, right? He's the yin to my yang. Um, but I always want to like jump in and know as much as I can, do as much as I can. Once I opened that door, which was hard to open, but once that door was open, it's like, let's go. Let's do this. Let's get through it. Get to the other side of the, the icky stuff so I can get to the good stuff.
1: I am forever grateful to for the work that you uh, and uh, Dr. Amen have done at the Amen Clinics uh, because when I was late 20s, maybe 29, uh, 30, um I read the first book uh, that he'd written. Uh, did you guys co-author that together?
2: No, no, no. That was uh, actually probably uh, was that change your brain change your life? Yeah. That was before I met him. Okay. Yeah.
1: So that um that book I was like I have to go get a brain scan and I got a brain scan and I'll never forget the the doctor um who was doing it up in the Bay Area thought I was trying to get Adderall uh, because I was in business school. Mm. And I'm like, I'm failing. Like, I I must be stupid. Uh, And all these other people in my class are smarter than me. And um, when he got the brain scan results, I walked back into his office and he goes, inside your brain is total chaos. I don't know how you're Mm -hmm. standing here in front of me. You have the best camouflage I've ever seen. And, and I'm like, mm-hmm. that, that's that grit thing where like you can have garbage. And and for me, it was a, a massive relief. To know, oh wait, I have a hardware problem. There's parts of my brain that have no metabolic activity, and there's like big holes. And when,
0: right.
1: and when you guys at the clinics, you know, saw my my brain scan, you're like, um, this is the brain of someone who lives under a bridge doing street mm-hmm. drugs. You have right. you have chemically induced brain damage from toxic mold. And I'm like, oh thank God, it's not just that I'm stupid. It's not just that I'm weak. Okay. Guys, I'd already made and lost $6 million at this point. My okay. career is like on fire. I'm going to freaking Wharton, one of the top schools out there. But the voice in my head is very different, and some of that's trauma-based. Mm-hmm. And that said, even if you have a no brain metabolic problems, but you have a lot of trauma, what happens?
2: If you've got no – um
1: it, it knows your, your brain is working metabolically, but you have a lot of trauma. What does that look oh, yeah. like? Yeah. Absolutely.
2: So what happens in that case is, so with, there's a difference between physical trauma, like a, like a head injury, and emotional trauma. So if you have physical trauma, what it tends to do, that's the holes you're talking about that can cause that. So lots of things can cause low blood flow. One of them is head trauma. So if you hit your head, causes low blood flow, it looks like a hole. What it really is is lack of blood flow. Um, it's decreased blood flow. So if you have emotional trauma, like when he looked at my brain scan, I had the, the, I had a dent in the front from where I'd had a head injury because he kept asking me, have you had a head injury? And I'm like, no, because I'm a trauma nurse. I was an ICU, neurosurgical ICU nurse. I'm like, to me, that means your skull is cracked open and you've got a drain in your brain, right? So I'm like, I've never had a head injury. But you could actually see just from something as simple as a car accident that I walked away from, you could see where I had hit my head. And so I'm like, that's so interesting. Like, I was fascinated by that. But what was really even more interesting was the emotional part of my brain on fire. Like it's on fire. It was bright red. And just like, it's supposed to have like a little bit of activity. And mine was like, it, there's a triangle pattern, or a diamond pattern rather. And if you have the diamond pattern, that is a sign of PTSD or emotional trauma. For some reason, your emotional ba- brain is just fired up.
1: So, so you can see oh, it. By the way
2: mold can do that too.
1: Yeah. It Well, mold is a form of trauma too. If you're getting chronically poisoned by the place where you sleep, your body's like, something's attacking me. I don't know what it is, but I'm ready to fight. And that's why a lot of people act like jerks when they're on molds, especially me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, one thing that I do is, is I find um, when we're, we're taking clients through 40 years, you know, five-day intense in our feedback program, um, almost everyone says, I've never hit my head, but we're like, your electrical signals look like it hit your head. And then you ask them right. 10 times, and then they say, oh, actually, that's right. I was unconscious for three days. Like, yeah, that time. But The ones like those, we refer them to go to aiming clinics and get a spec scan, right? right? Um, Because it's like, oh, there's stuff to do. And then on the electrical side, and and most of what we're, well, 60% of what we're doing there is, you know, turning off old traumas so that you can perform better. Because trauma release is a performance enhancer in every human there ever was. And there is no human that wasn't traumatized. It's just a question of degree and type, right? right? Do you agree with that statement?
2: A hundred percent. I think most people have been traumatized. How we handle it is so different as humans. Um, but I love what you said about the head injuries, because we ask people over and over. This happened to my own mother. I warned her before she went in. He's going to ask you about all the times you hit your head, which are numerous. My mother is the poster child for ADD. She's super successful. She's super bright, but she's very scattered. And so she, I'm like, he's going to ask you about all the times you hit your head. Please tell him even though they may not seem important to you. She goes in, he asks her, she's like, I, I've never had a head injury. I'm like, oh my God, I literally had to call him. I go, she's lying to you. She's lying to you. He goes, what do you mean she's lying to me? I go, well, she fell off of a, a high dive when she was a kid and missed the pool. She landed on the concrete. Like I had to go through all these. People forget and they don't think those things matter because they lived through it or because they didn't lose consciousness. Just because you don't lose consciousness does not mean your brain did not wasn't affected. While we're on the topic of what things that affect your brain, like you talked about mold and that's just so interesting, things like hormones and all those things matter as well. Um, I know you and I were talking a little bit off camera about um, perimenopause makes a huge difference. And like for me, when I was in my 20s is one of the things I write about in my new book is um, I went through thyroid cancer and no one really warned me what was going to happen. And I went into a wicked depression because I did not know that just the thyroid cancer itself was going to be a problem. And the treatment that I went through, they took me off of all of my medication. I had no thyroid in my system. And then there's the anesthesia. And then there's the psychological component to it. And I went into this wicked depression. And it was the first time I actually had the thought, life is not supposed to be this hard. There's no point. And so we we always want to be paying attention to all of those things when you're talking about your brain. you know. And then the flip side of that is I was put onto a medication that wasn't good for my brain to pull me out of the depression. And I went let's just say it was not good for my brain, Um, I became like dangerously impulsive. So I went from being overly anxious to dangerously impulsive and it could have ruined my life. So these are all the things at the clinics that we want to talk about with people that we want to make sure we we assess all of them because you are not... The sum of one thing in your life, right? You are. What's happening in your brain is the sum of all things that are going on with you: your biology, your psychology, your social circle, who you're hanging out with, and your spiritual circle. What gives your life meaning and purpose? So we need to look at all of that, and not just from right now, but throughout your life.
1: Well, let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your spiritual circle uh, because. Uh, One of the other things that Scott Barry Kaufman shared was the hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. He studied everything Maslow ever wrote that wasn't published and became an expert on it. And Maslow was about to publish the final step on his hierarchy of needs, uh, which was for transcendence, Mm -hmm. where this is actually a basic drive for humans to be happy. They have to have some way to do that. And that gets into spiritual realms when you do it. And and some of the most impactful healing and just important things in my life have been on the spiritual realms. And you write in your book about how faith is important in healing trauma. Talk to me about faith and trauma.
2: So I understand that people listening right now are coming from all different walks of life. Um, You have to understand what what spirituality means to you, because there are some people who um, they may not have the same belief system I have. I mean, for me, spirituality is God, and it's about prayer and meditation, um, and that really it's but it's really about believing in something bigger than yourself. And it takes the focus off of you and puts it on something larger than yourself. And one question I like to ask myself when I start to get stuck on the small things in my life that are bothering me is like, does this have eternal value? Why is the world a better place? Because I breathe. So it it sort of takes it off of me and puts the responsibility on me to think of others or to think of what's bigger than myself. Um, and, And for me, that is God. For me, that is prayer. It's meditation. Those things help me. To get out of that place in my head but it really did pull me out of a dark deep dark ugly place when i was able to recognize that the world is so much bigger than this one little place that i am stuck in
1: i i like that and i i do believe that that all of the neuroscience research i've seen um, both uh, from you guys and uh, just other experts i've i've interacted with on the show is that having some sort of a, a sense of mission and a sense of there's something mm-hmm. bigger than me, it puts you in a flow state. It, it yeah, makes everything easier, and apparently it makes healing from a trauma easier, uh, which, is, mm-hmm. it does. which is new information.
2: And one of the best things you can do is help other people. So, I mean, just, just having that sense of purpose is, sometimes that's the thing you start with, is like, I just need to go help someone else to take me out of my own negativity.
1: Is this why most therapists are so traumatized?
2: <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of people go into that field because of that. Honestly, I do. Yeah. And that's
1: not a yeah. dig on therapists like, hey, if you've yeah. lived it, you can probably fix it better than someone's like, I don't know what you're talking about, but here's the steps. Right. Like you know, I they color by interested. numbers isn't so good. Like I'd, I'd rather have a doctor who was really sick for a while than a doctor right. who's at perfect health and has never been fat. And
2: they have empathy. Yeah.
0: Right.
1: Yeah. Uh, I uh, I really like that. All of this, though, end of the day, uh, when when I read through Relentless Courage of a Scared Child, it comes down to building resilience. But mm-hmm. what isn't really clear to me is that are you more resilient because of all the stuff that happened and the healing you did than you would have been had you not gone through those things?
2: I, I think I am. I think I am. I think it really tested my mettle, if you will. Um, so I, it's hard for me to say how I would have been if I – Hadn't gone through those things, but I think um, going through them definitely made me stronger. And I think, you know, like we talked about earlier, there are some people who fold under that pressure. There just are. There are some, but they, and they are doing a lot of studies on resilience right now. And I, I don't know that they have a definite answer. There's definitely a genetic component. But some people fold. I have two half sisters who just did not stand up well at all. They still can't sort of get on their feet, Um, which is really interesting. They weren't raised in the same house with me. We didn't have the same mother. And it's my mother that had grit. So that makes me believe in the the genetic component. Um, But what builds that resilience? I mean, if, if I don't go to the gym and work out and lift heavier weight, I'm not going to have heavier, like stronger muscles, right? Or if I don't go train in karate, I'm not going to learn more skill. I mean, however you want to say it, you've got to sort of test it, you've got to practice it, you've got to you've got to work it to have those muscles. And so, I I do think to some degree that being exposed to certain things. I think there's a point though where we if you're overexposed to it, and this isn't just me saying this. I mean, my husband and I talk about this, and there are there's research that shows if up to a degree exposure to stress and trauma. Builds resilience beyond a certain point, and that point is different for everybody. It breaks you, and so and it can be different. So it just breaks you. You know, there. Are, one of my favorite books is um, Victor Frankel's book, *Man's Search for Meaning*. And it's like, my God, I mean that that man went through literally hell. Um, and it's it's like, why can some people do that and come out being such amazing humans with such an amazing sense of purpose? And then there are other people who, you know. One thing happens in their life and they never recover from it. It's it's a good question.
1: It sounds like we don't have even with all the hundreds of thousands of brain images that you guys have accumulated and, and all the wisdom, we still don't know how to tell. You know, I'm a parent, right? And I want my kids to experience failure, right? Absolutely. I don't want my kids to experience trauma but right. failure is a trauma at a certain point like i worked really hard on that and i just didn't get it because someone was better and i think that's really good and it's okay if they're really sad yeah. and they feel it and and that builds grit right but you also don't want to break them and it it it's like how does a parent know how to let your kids fail enough and experience enough pain to be strong but not so much pain that it's unkind or you know sadistic or you know, harmful in any way. I feel like this is missing from all the world of parenting where like, you know, let, let your kids feel that, right? Because they'll be okay. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols
2: So I was raised very differently from how my daughter is being raised, right? I mean, extreme, night and day. Um, we were super poor when I was growing up. So I intentionally, though, saw started to see some of the entitlement and some of the issues with kids around the area that I live. And I'm like, you know, I don't really want to do that. I don't like that. I, I'm not seeing these kids thrive. And so I actually went on this uh, quest. And I love this one parenting program that literally transformed how I parent. And it's called Love and Logic. And we actually now, because I, it just was transformative for me, I actually submerged myself into it. And we ended up during this pandemic, they were going to shut their doors after like 30 years. We ended up sort of getting involved with them and becoming their partners so they wouldn't do that. That's how important I think it is. But love and logic is really about learning how to draw healthy boundaries, being a good coach, not being a helicopter parent, but letting your kids experience real life consequences. The problem is not kids. The problem is how we respond to their problems as parents. Most parents can't stand to see their kids in pain. And so they just can't. So I, I started to realize that early on and I'm like, you know, I just don't want to raise this kid to be this entitled brat. So she's got to learn how to like, I had to step back and let her just do things. And every time I would see her start to experience pain, I'm like, uh, oh, I'd want to jump in. And I'm like, Nope, not going to tell her what to do. Unless she asks me, I'm not going to tell her what to do. And so if she got in trouble, she had to pay the real life consequence for that. Like whatever that life consequence was for that action, I began to let her do it. And now the problem that there's one caveat, though, one warning that I would give with that, and that my daughter is 17. And now I kind of want to be able to be involved in her life and help her more, and she does not really need my help <laughs> so, at all. Like I'm like, well, honey, do you want my opinion? No, I'll let you know if I need your opinion. I'll let you know if I need your help. She's so independent, like she's, well, she's so self-sufficient. Like mom, right? Yeah, exactly. But that where comes she from that. letting her do it on her own. You know, from the failure, from the from the from not getting everything she wants how she wants it.
1: It. It's a, a tough thing because no parent ever wants to traumatize their kids. And we all want our kids to have everything. And, you know, I uh, it's to the point, oh, you forgot your lunch? You'll be hungry today. Like, I, no, we're not going to drive home and get it for you. Yeah. Tomorrow, remember your lunch already because I know, hey, they can fast. It's all right.
2: I never took – exactly. I told my daughter, I go it takes 30 days for kids to starve to death. So, But she like if she forgot a project, then she's going to get the grade she gets. I already passed second grade, third grade, fourth grade. It's not my job. So I would let her do that. And so she started to really learn, oh, I need to be responsible. I mean, the kid works two jobs now while she's in school just because that's her personality. But that comes from not giving her everything. So it's, it's really important.
1: One of the things about trauma, especially with someone with a degree of trauma that you have, is usually you become a really shitty parent. And you don't do it on mm-hmm. purpose, but it's because you do the same things to raise your kids that you experience and you do it automatically. Like it's it's built mm-hmm. in, you know, a deer will raise a baby deer doing what it was taught. When it was a baby deer, like it, it's not always conscious. It's a, a survival mechanism. And uh, it sounds like you dodged that bullet and, you know, passing on intergenerational trauma is a big deal. It was intentional. So you you studied yeah, and you did the work. Okay.
2: So I, I mean, I think, you know, maybe, maybe part of it's being a nurse, maybe part of it's just that I, I am fairly introspective. But I will say I started off probably headed down that road doing the same, making some of the same mistakes that, you know, my family made, but I caught myself and I knew I figured it out pretty early. It's like, I'm about to make the same mistakes I swore I would never do. And I, that's when I really was, that's actually my motivation. That's when it's in my book. That's what caused me to go on the journey to open some of those wounds that I had shut the door so tightly on was because I had this daughter and I'm like, I'm going to screw her up. I don't want to screw her up the way that I had, you know, and raise her the way I had been raised. So that was intentional on my part to address that. But I was headed down that road. I was making some of those mistakes.
1: One of the interesting things I've come across in my uh, unusual spiritual travels and also some of the stuff from 40 years of Zen with, with clients, when a When when the parent of a child experiences a trauma, say at two years old, when their child turns two, suddenly their two-year-old trauma gets activated. Did you experience that? I don't know if I asked the question very well, but yeah.
2: My husband pointed that out to me because I would go through – like my favorite age with my daughter, I love love middle schoolers. Nobody loves middle schoolers. I love middle schoolers. I love that age with kids. I just think they're so awkward and funny and just – they're ridiculous and they're just hilarious. They remind me of unicorns. And so I love that age. That was one of the few good times in my life. And I didn't realize sort of that connection. My husband's like, you know, you're sort of experiencing what your daughter did. 15 was a really hard age for me. 15, 16, one of the worst times. And I found myself almost like projecting that onto my daughter. And Daniel was the one that caught me. He's like, don't, don't assume she's going through what you went through or treat her the way that you were at that age. She's not you. And I was like, "Oh, wow, okay. It's really helpful to have a partner who's that psychologically savvy."
1: Yeah, but yes, it's uh, very true. He definitely knows a few things, right? Yeah, so it's so very you have true. a good true. a good partner there. How how much of a role it, it is best for a person's partner to take in their trauma healing?
2: Wow, that's tricky because I think it really depends on the person. I'm a very strong personality, and I it, the best way to get me to do something is tell me I can't. Best way to get me not to do something is tell me I have to.
0: That's why we can um, be friends,
2: right? So, but but my husband is—I always say he's like very sneaky. He's very sly, Um, so he uses that to his advantage. He'll be like, "Yeah, you probably don't want to do this today," or "I really don't want you working." He'll say, "I'm like that's why I've written ten books in ten years." Like, what? No, you can't (laughs) say that. Like, (laughs) um, but he—he's just—I think because he's so gentle in his delivery like he didn't like even when we were dating I pushed him away I broke up with him twice I broke his heart but he wouldn't go away I mean he didn't stalk me but he wouldn't go away he was just like I love you enough and I have so much respect for you as a person that if it means being your friend that's okay he would always find this slippery angle you know what I mean like he was and so he always has this really cool way of 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 being my partner not my parent. And I think that's a really key point is that when your partner tries to tell you what to do or parent you, at least for someone like me, that is not going to work. But when they come at it from a place of love and support and like, look, I get you, I get you don't want to do this, but I'm here for you. Like even as extreme as me breaking up with him and him going, I still want to be here for you. That's, that's someone you listen to. I mean, that's somebody who's just genuinely there for you.
1: And I think it's it's that being there and like oh, you're going through some stuff you know how can I help you how can I support you but not you know not carrying them not doing you the have work. to
2: do this right you can't fix people one thing I've learned with my own family fixing people rarely works it's it's that difference between being you know the hand up and the hand out and fig- I'm not a fixer there's just no I I won't be more invested in something than someone else is like you when I'm coaching someone. You've got to be invested. You're the one who has to do the work. I'm not going to fix you.
1: Right. It it makes a lot of sense. And and the whole partner thing is tough because if one person in a in a marriage or a relationship is traumatized, there's a very high degree probability the other person is traumatized and that's part of why they were attracted mm-hmm. to each other. Was that the case with you and Daniel?
2: No, it's so funny. So I actually write about this again in my book. I write about the story about how we met. And every once in a while, the one thing that we'll butt heads over is he has this very, his favorite movie is Pollyanna, drives me crazy. He wants to watch it over and over and over. It's like the glad game. I'm like, stop it. My favorite movie is Law Abiding Citizen. Like why? We'll stop. So we like have this very different way of looking at the world. But he also grew up with Leave it to Beaver. And I grew up on, you know, with the Nightmare on Elm Street. So we have this extremely different, and I always tease him. I'm like, you've got Mickey and Minnie in your head doing the waltz. It's like the happiest place on earth. What the heck? you know?" And he's like, you're always paranoid. You're looking over your shoulder waiting for the next bad thing to happen. So I don't know why we work so well, quite frankly. And we just have fun. But I think he doesn't take things so seriously. I mean, I'm serious about everything. He doesn't take things so seriously. And it it causes me to let my guard down.
1: Dave Data talks about polarity. As being really important, Mm. just, you know, the, the distance between two people, whether it's between the masculine and the feminine, which is what he talks about mostly, or just even in this degree between, you know, kind of happy-go-lucky and intensity, yeah, it seems like that can really work well.
2: Oh, I could never be with someone like me. I could never be with someone like me. I'm so intense with everything. It would be a nightmare in my house. I always, I often like say, he's my rock he just sort of like grounds me. He soothes me. He's like, no matter what I'm wound up about, he's like, it's going to be okay, honey. And the minute he says that, I'm just like, oh, 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 he's right. It's going to be okay. Like, I just know it's going to be okay. You know?
1: I know that that telling your story uh, in a a book and really writing it down in and of itself can be healing. Uh, Did you experience a lot of healing as you wrote Relentless Courage?
2: I did. And not for the reason I thought. So I thought, okay, it's probably going to be cathartic. Although I was torn about whether I wanted to do it for a long time, but really the reason I, it was so cathartic. Yes. The act of writing is really helpful, but writing it from an adult's perspective, when you're writing about childhood memories, you know, there's a saying that our memories are always valid, but they're not always accurate. So having to write it. And when you're writing. A story, but everyone is still alive. You have to have your facts correct, right? So I had to have everything correct. So I had to interview everybody. And that process of interviewing the people in my life, even the ones that I wasn't close to when I was young um, or that I had issues with, that was so powerful because now I'm processing it from an adult perspective and getting the perspectives of the other people that were in my life. Now I have a whole story rather than just the, the story of a little kid who was scared, and so I was able to reprocess it as an adult. It was so powerful.
1: It's, um, it, it's definitely, um, I've seen books where you know, people are writing their story and, and it's, it's cathartic and you get to tell your story and you get to let it out. In this case, though, you made it a little bit more instructional. Like, all right, like if I can go through all this um, and come out the way I am, um, you probably can too because the odds are it wasn't that intense for you. But here's a question, okay? You've you've done whatever healing came from the writing and interviewing process and all of the things you've done with your brain and all the therapy and spiritual, all the stuff that's in there. How much more work do you have to do before you would consider yourself fully free of all the trauma?
2: You know, I don't feel like I'm, I don't wake up every day and feel traumatized. I feel, I actually feel great, um, but I will do work for the rest of my life. Yeah. But I don't, I I don't believe in an end point so much. Um, I feel like the trauma is healed, but I will, here's the thing. It's life. We're going to have more trauma. 2020 was freaking trauma. Okay. So for a lot of people, it's like trauma is not like things are going to happen throughout your life. What I want is skill. So that's why I practice martial arts. It's like you practice martial arts because it's like warriors don't show up on fight day and expect to win. They train every day so that when the fight shows up, they're ready. Um, that's kind of what I like to do is like, I will never stop. I'm a seeker. Now that I opened that door, I'm a seeker. I want skill because I know things happen. You know, God forbid, but my best friend, her daughter was killed by a drunk driver. I think I would lose my mind. But because I have people like that in my life and I'm constantly seeking, those are skills I want. God forbid, when things happen, you have skill now. You're not that scared child. Now you're in an armed adult and
1: and there's two ways to look at at trauma here one is you need to heal the trauma right Mm -hmm. and the other one is it's a limitation that you want to remove right and there's a reason that you know my upgrade labs company is called upgrade labs not heal labs right Mm -hmm. because what happens is after you deal with health or deal with healing you continue evolving and there's always more levels. And then for everyone everyone out there, it's like, okay, how much of what I'm doing is healing versus becoming stronger? And they're actually the same thing, but healing is getting back to normal and then going beyond normal to you know, levels that you don't know you can do. That's what interests me now. But when I, when I was 30, it was all about, oh my god, I had no idea I had any healing to do, but apparently I have all sorts of crap in there that I didn't know about, so I got to sort through all of that. Um, and um, it's the idea that that you're not going to stop and no one ever stops. And if they do, there's a word for it. It's called stagnant. And if you're stuck mm-hmm. and you're doing the same thing, that's not a very happy place and you're likely to get depressed and anxious. Right?
2: No, I love what you're saying. Um, I love this leveling up thing. And I have a different way of saying it, but it's sort of the same thing. Um, I often say I'd rather be healed than cured. I would never want to be cured. I actually wouldn't want to be cured from my past because it's kind of why I'm a badass. It's kind of why I'm so strong. I have a lot of confidence that I can handle a lot of things. I'm very competent. So life throws a lot of things at us, but I feel fairly competent. That came from hard work. So I wouldn't want to take that back. One of my favorite art forms is something called Kintsugi. It's broken pottery that's mended with gold. It's a Japanese art form and they mend this pottery with gold or platinum. And I love the symbolism there because it's like, they believe that that pottery is more beautiful because of those breaks. Because each one of those breaks tells a story. And so I, I think of that and I'm like, you know, we are more beautiful. We're more complex, more interesting because of those broken pieces that we've mended back together. And mends, you know, just like a scar, you can be stronger because of that as long as you heal it, as long as you allow it to, to set.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, uh, I, really like, I really like that, that picture because, frankly, if everyone grew up in a world with no stress and no trauma... It'd be a pretty boring world. And if we turn the trauma Absolutely. dial up so much by watching the news all the time and, mm. uh, you know, becoming very, very fearful about things that are, are in the overall scheme of percentages not as big as we think they are, um, that sometimes is that overwhelming trauma. Do you think that there's a lot of kids who are going to require trauma healing from 2020?
2: hundred percent. I don't think it. I know it because we are, we had a record breaking year and it's sad that this is the reason we had a record breaking year. Um, but suicide, depression, anxiety through the roof, even in our own home, we had adopted our two nieces right before quarantine. And, but, you know, having three girls that are sort of in their teen years, my daughter getting ready to go to college, they sort of lost it. And because they don't have enough life experience to know, okay, this is not the end of the world. Like, it's going to be okay. But this is the biggest thing that's happened for them. To lose things, you know, we can't really judge people's grief or their trauma. To lose graduation or scholarships because of sports or, you know, just your friend group, which at that age, your friend group is the most important thing to you. Those are things that we, we, if we are sort of nonchalant and we're like, get over it, there's a pandemic, then they're going to suffer more than if we listen to them and help them through it. But I know they're suffering because when we don't listen to them, we don't help them through it. Teen suicide is through the roof.
1: Yeah. I don't think we're counting those in the numbers and we should be uh, because that's what we informs our response to anything as a society is yes. you got to look at the, the total impact of the system. Well, mm-hmm. Tana, I, I think you've written a, a powerful book, and it's one that I would encourage you if you're listening to the show. Uh, you know, I interview a lot of authors. You can tell I know Tana very well, and she's coming from, well, if you've written 10 books, you know how to write. So it, it's a good read. But it also comes from just a a place of, wow, the odds are that if you're alive and you haven't done conscious work on whether you want to call it trauma or just bad patterns in there, whatever whatever word it makes you want to throw up the least, but there's stuff that you can't see because by design, you're not supposed to see it. That is influencing your actions and your behavior and sucking your energy. And I want you to fix that. And Dana wants you to fix that. And her book has some very cool stuff in it about how it works So this is a worthy read for you. And uh, thank you guys for listening to the show, And Tana, Thank you for being on the show.
2: Thanks so much, Dave.
1: If you guys like the episode today, uh, you know what to do. Figure out whatever trauma you have and then go smack it over the head. Okay, there's other ways to do it than that. Or uh, read the book and definitely read Fast This Way because the other big trauma that's out there is fasting. And if you were to say, get fast this way and relentless courage on Amazon and you buy them together, then everyone will see that they should be read together because there is a great overlap between attacking that first F word fear. And that's what ultimately it's all about. And if you didn't ever drink bulletproof coffee, you didn't ever take a supplement and you never ran electricity over your brain the way I like to do it, and you just figured out how to have less trauma, I promise you, you'll perform better as a human being. And that's why this really matters. So read the book, leave a review.